It's the Kia Summer Sticker Sales Event, so give your friends something to look at, like a B&B with an ocean view, an endless field of wildflowers, or a sunset that needs no filter. Make this a summer to share and save with a capable Kia SUV or powerful sedan. See your local Kia dealer or visit Kia.com to learn more. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-334-KIA for details. Always drive safely. Sale applies to purchase of specially tagged 2024 vehicles only. Quantities are limited. Must take delivery by 7824. From directing Bear grills in a camel carcass in the Sahara to becoming an author and novelist, my guest has had a very diverse palette of roles. My guest is Tony Lee Morale, and Tony is not only a director, a producer, an award-winning natural history filmmaker, but he's also an author and a novelist. He has directed and worked with Animal Planet, Channel 4, ITV, Discovery, National Geographic Channel, the BBC, and many more. And Tony has not only directed people like Bear Grylls, Ray Mears, Stephen Fry, and Bill Bailey, but he has also moved on to produce and direct his own films. And one of his latest films is The Cat That Changed America, which also has a book that he wrote and published to go along with it. So without further ado, let's get on with the podcast. This podcast is proudly powered by Battleborn Batteries. Let the power of lithium take you on your journeys across the outdoor world. Battleborn Batteries is the industry's top choice for lithium-ion batteries. Reliable, safe, and long-lasting, Battleborn makes the sustainable and lightweight drop-in replacement for traditional lead-acid batteries. Are you ready to make the switch to lithium and switch to green energy? If so, all batteries are in stock now, and you can shop today at battlebornbatteries.com. Hi, Tony. Thanks so much for taking the time out this morning to be on the Master Wildlife Filmmaking Podcast. I, I say this morning, uh, it's actually your evening. You're in the Bristol, UK. I'm over in Nevada. How are you doing this evening? I'm very well, Jake. Thanks for inviting me. I've been a big fan of your Master Wildlife Filmmaking Podcast, so it's great to be a guest on it. Fantastic. Well, I'm going to start this as we do with all of these, and that is to find a little bit uh, out about Tony and what, what it is that got you into the wildlife filmmaking industry. So uh, what was it that, that propelled you into this industry and got you where you are today? Well, I've always been interested in animals ever since I was a child. I was, I was lucky. I lived by the sea. I grew up in Hastings. We lived by the beach. So I was either on the beach in the rock pools or in the sand dunes or we had a back garden so I was very fascinated with insects and seashore life and I was just enamored by the ocean growing up I was always looking out to sea in Hastings hoping I would spot a dolphin or a whale I was really very keen on whales and dolphins as a child um, I never saw one, of course, off the south coast of England but at that point I didn't know you know that wasn't the best and I remember um going to Brighton to see a dead whale because at that time in the 70s they were taking these poor dead whales that were 
washed up on the beach and almost like zoo exhibits taking them around the country. So I remember going to see, um, it was probably a dead fin whale or something and being really fascinated by its anatomy and physiology. And even though it probably stunk to high heaven, you know, I was really fascinated by wildlife. But um, I, I got into the wildlife filmmaking industry. Um, I did my degree in zoology. So after university, um, by that time, my family had moved to Bristol and had gone to school and college in Bristol. So I knew about the natural history uh, unit, obviously, at the BBC. And the trials of life had just aired and life on Earth had aired, you know, many years earlier. So it's very keen on those and they were part of our zoology course as well the, the meerkats were infamous obviously at the time we had so much hype um so i just kept writing and sending ideas to the bbc and um eventually we probably got tired of me writing and they just took me on as a researcher and i was i was working there throughout the 90s that's fantastic so you knew very very early on what what it was you wanted to do you had this kind of planned out that you would get your zoology degree and then, you know, head into the filmmaking industry? Um, some, somewhat. I, I always, I've always been a keen writer, so um, I was always writing stories as a child. It's a real passion of mine. Um, so I've always been a communicator, and writing animal stories was probably part of the goal, or certainly about the environment. Um, but I, I remember the kind of turning point. I was 16 and I was either going to become a journalist or I was going to really become a wildlife filmmaker and storyteller. And I, I read Life on Earth again over a weekend. And I think Attenborough's prose um, made me decide to pursue zoology. So, yeah, I've got I've got Attenborough to thank for and. It was my first job in television was actually researching for David Attenborough on his series, The Private Life of Plants, um, back in 92 and 93. So, yeah, it was I, I think you can just call it destiny, really. <laughs> it was it was in the stars for me to to follow that course. <clears throat> so so after you were a researcher, what was the progression from researching for um, Attenborough's programs to then you know, moving into producing and um, and everything else. What? How did that work for you, that progression? Well, at the BBC or in the Natural History Unit, it's it's a great learning curve. Um, it's, it's almost like doing a university or masterclass in filmmaking. So um, you're a researcher for a few years and then you're promoted to an assistant producer and that happened to me in the mid nineties. I was, I went from researching a few series to uh, becoming an assistant producer, which means they give you more responsibility and they they allow you to go on shoots and direct sequences with cameramen. So in the mid nineties, I worked on a series called Land of a Tiger. So I spent two years in India on and off. You know, it's an amazing job really because got to go to India and Nepal and Bangladesh and Pakistan and the Himalayas and Assam and all these far-flung places in Bhutan um, and saw incredible amounts of wildlife and so from there you become an assistant producer and then you get promoted to a director and then after Animal Zone I was on after Land of a Tiger I was on Animal Zone for two years which was a Sunday night tea time series 
and I was directing with uh, Chris Packham, Simon King, Michaela Strachan. Got wonderful memories of going to the Bahamas and Yellowstone and Ecuador and, and directing, you know, swimming with dolphins or being up close with bison in Yellowstone or going to um, Isla de la Plata's off Ecuador with Chris Packham to look at seabirds. So um, but that was that was the progression. And again, as I said, you really learn your craft in directing, working with animals and presenters. So did you have uh, much experience actually with wildlife before you got into the industry? Or did you find that that kind of built as you started getting out in the field and directing? Well, I had done a zoology degree and my specialist was animal behavior. So my, my third year thesis was on fallow deer in Berkshire. So spent a lot of time with deer, observing deer um, and, and making it relatable to the scientific community because uh, fallow deer in game parks are caught and they're weighed and you assess their stress levels and how females compare to males and you find out that actually it's the males which are more skittish than the older females because the young bucks get very nervous and they have high levels of stress levels and cortisol. So I, I had the trainings to be a zoologist, um, but I obviously decided I wanted to be a communicator and storyteller rather than um, collect scientific data. But backgrounding was really essential for, for my years as a researcher, as an assistant producer. So I felt comfortable talking to scientists on the phone about animal behavior or um, looking at data or collecting data from journals like Nature or Scientific American or Ecology, because um, doing university, you obviously have your dissertation and you have to do citations and reach out and keep up to date with current affairs in the natural world and natural behavior. So all that was great grounding. And obviously I had three years of that at university. Now, was directing kind of your passion at this point? Did you choose to stay with directing or did you kind of move between producing and directing? What, what was your, you know, your choice in terms of where to, to stick it, as it were? Um, I did enjoy directing. I very much enjoyed being in the field, um, being outdoors. I had a very good experience in Florida and the Bahamas and Yellowstone. And I'd always wanted to work in America. So at the end of the nine, 90s, this was 1999, after seven years at the Natural History Unit, I think I developed the seven year itch. And I really wanted to right. move on um, because I was still in my 20s. Um, I was 20, turning 28. And I, I got a fantastic job offer uh, with National Geographic and PBS, they said they were looking for um, an associate producer to work on a series called The Shape of Life, which was a big budget blue chip science series. And it wasn't just um, blue chip, i.e. animal behavior, it was science. And that really attracted to me working with scientists. And so um, I got um, an eye visa from them and I went over to live in California for two years, which was an incredible experience. We were set up in next to the Monterey Bay Aquarium on Cannery Row um, for a 
a studio called Sea Studios. And so I was working next to the ocean, which was my ambition, having grown up in Hastings, you know. And I, I, I literally did fulfill my ambition and see dolphins and whales in the wild in Monterey because <laughs> I went out on a whale-watching boat, I remember. And obviously Excellent. Monterey is very famous for its um, grey whales and even killer whales. Um, and so being next to the aquarium was fantastic. We used to call it the um, uh, commissary because we, uh, we would go there for lunch in the canteen and see these fantastic images of the moon jellies. And if you've been to Monterey Aquarium, it's a fantastic backdrop. It's, you know, one of the best aquariums on the, on the West Coast. And being surrounded by that atmosphere, you know, I, what, what I associate with Monterey is the fresh air, um, the sea otters in the kelp forest. You can watch them from the shore, uh, the sea lions. Uh, so it's, it was really, really a fantastic place to work for a couple of years. How did you come across that job? Because you were working at the BBC Natural History Unit. So to make that leap, were you yeah. actively at that point looking for work and you, you found that listed somewhere? What was that, that kind of, uh, you know, that transition like? Well, like most jobs in the Natural History Unit, it's a very, or Natural History, it's a very people-connected industry. So I, I would go to Wildscreen and I met the series producer, um, this was October 98, I think, um, who had come over from the US because they were promoting The Shape of Life and they were getting funding. And so um, I was, I spent, Calif I spent Christmas in California that year. I went to visit them um, in Monterey and afterwards they offered me the job. Um, so I gave, I gave my notice at the Natural History Unit and was on a plane to Monterey by, by May. <laughs> you know, stayed there for two years. That's excellent. And that just, again, shows the power of the film festivals and networking. Yeah. Because had you not been there, then that may have never happened and you might still be at the BBC, you know, with, with that itch. <laughs> so, yes, so it yes. really does show the power of, of heading out and networking. Absolutely. You what know, was your? Are very important. Sorry, we got a bit of a a delay happening here. So, um, so so you spent a couple of years there working for them. What what was your next move from there? Because you know, a lot of people looking to get into this industry, they hear you know you're working at the BBC, you've moved up through the BBC as you know researcher, assistant producer, director. What could be better? And then you move and you come over to the States and now you're working on, uh, you know, with PBS and National Geographic. Again, what could be better? What did you do from there? You know, what was it that then made you transition again from there? Oh, well, my, my work visa ran out. <laughs> it was a, a two-year sponsorship. Anyone who works in America knows you either get a green card or you get married or your visa runs out. And the, op the options for me at the time was to come back to the UK, which I did in uh, 2001, 2002. And, and again, I was fortunate because I, I got a job at the BBC Science Unit in London. And they, they took me on, obviously, because of all my years in the Natural History Unit. And I was developing ideas with a natural history slant or an emphasis. Um, I worked on a series called Body Snatchers, which was about parasitology, parasites. That's a BBC One series. 
Um, I worked on a series, developed a series called Killer Dinosaurs because of my natural history up, upbringing. I had a good background on dinosaurs. I did a series development on Jimmy's Farm with Jimmy Doherty, and that, that ran for several seasons. So, yeah, I was fortunate, carried on at BBC. Um, and then after that, I, I went freelance as a producer and worked for many years as a producer. It, it's, um, you know, it's interesting because uh, there's a lot of people I know who, you know, work really hard to get to the BBC, right? You know, it's all, you know, try, how do I get into the BBC? How do I become a researcher? How do I move up the ladder? And then, you know, obviously you're there and you start working up the ladder. How important do you think it was for you to make that decision to move away? I mean, I know this is not for everyone. It's a personal, it's a very subjective decision. But do you think you're, you know, would you be in the same place today, you think, if you didn't make the decision to go across the other side of the world and work for a different network? Was that important to your kind of life goals and career? Well, it's certainly important to my life goals. As I said, I've, I've always been very um, America-centric. I grew up watching a lot of American television. I was fascinated by the Wild West. I told you about my interest in, you know, the Pacific Ocean. Um, so it, it was inevitable. Um, I, I, don't, I don't believe in regrets. And, you know, you choose your own path in life. And sometimes it chooses you with circumstances. So it's not a regret uh, decision. I look back and say, oh, I wish I'd stayed in Bristol um, because I had so many fantastic opportunities, made some great friends who I'm still in touch with. Um, and we go on to say that I, I got a green card about seven years ago. And so I've continued my relationship with the US and been back and forth and worked for several networks in the US as well, which I probably wouldn't have done if I hadn't, didn't have those kind of foundation years working in the US as well. And of course now, you know, the world is a much, much smaller place. Certainly when it comes to natural history, it's really opened up where, you know, there's so many collaborations between networks and production companies. I think today it's so much easier to make that transition than it was 20 odd years ago. Um, so, so now you're, uh, you're a freelance producer. Uh, tell us about some of the projects, kind of, you know, what, it's, it's always scary when you go freelance, right? I don't think it matters what role you're in, but when you decide to stop getting that, you know, consistent paycheck coming in and you go freelance and now, you know, you're pulling in work, every single gig that comes in, you've got to find. In some cases, it can be a regular reoccurring, uh, you know, gig coming in from networks or production companies, but not all the time. So what was that like when you decided to go freelance? You know, did it did it come easily straight away or did you have to work hard at it? I think when I returned from the US initially, I had to work hard because I'd been out of the circuit for two years. Um, and people obviously have short term memories um, and there's always a new um, uh, level of people coming up, up the ranks in the industry. Uh, but as I said, I was very keen to diversify. So I was very interested in science, um, which is another network in London and also now in, in Glasgow and other parts of the UK. 
So I, I don't think, as you said, you shouldn't really limit yourself. Certainly Bristol's got some fantastic communities, but I wouldn't say it's the centre of a wildlife community because you, because with a proliferation of streamers, you can really um, base yourself anywhere. And there's some fantastic output of programmes coming from the US. You know, I really admire The Secret Life of Wales, which is uh, produced out of Washington. And there's some great companies in California producing wildlife. And a lot of our best cameramen and um, producers, you know, they're fortunate to live in, in the US, in the Rocky Mountain states, wherever they choose to live, um, because the industry is now so wide ranging, I think. Um, and it's very different from 20 or 40 years ago when when Bristol was more of a nucleus. And it used to be so much harder just to connect with people in other countries. And now, of course, yeah. you know, for pretty much for free, we can just turn on a camera and be chatting, you know, the other side of the world. Yeah. So as, as a freelance producer, tell us about some of the projects that you got involved in. I know um, some of the latest projects, we'll, we'll get to those. But in terms of when you first went freelance, what, what were the bigger projects that you were able to sink your teeth into? And, and, and how long did they kind of last as a freelance role? Sure. After the BBC, I did a few series for Channel 4. I really enjoyed working with Bill Bailey. Um, we did a series called Wild Thing I Love You, which was kind of one hit wonder um, about a group of uh, scientists in the UK who would build engineering solutions to help wildlife. And I did two great programmes, which I'm very proud of, called Bats and Puffins. Um, and... I did I did a lot with Bear Grylls um, on Man vs. Wild, the early seasons, and that would take me to uh, Alaska and Iceland and Russia. I did a fantastic two-part series in Russia and also the Sahara. I'm quite infamous for Bear sleeping inside a camel, that episode I directed in the Sahara. Um, and so those those projects come to mind. I did another series with Bill for Sky called Bill Bailey's Birdwatching Bonanza. And so th those those were the highlights. I don't think they ever reached the peak of the shape of life in terms of um, amount of money we could put on screen. But they were kind of mid-range series, which were great fun to do as a director, producer, and we're working with top talent as well. So when you're directing something like um, Man vs. Wild with Bear Grylls and, you know, a scene in the Sahara inside of a camel, you know, what what is, I, I think, you know, a lot of people get confused as to how these shows are put together. You know, they, they see Bear Grylls and they think that really Bear is just doing his thing and the camera person's just tagging along, capturing it all on camera and there's a show. Um, tell us a little bit about how you direct and how, you know, director and producer and host and camera person, how, how all those roles fit together to create that final show? Well, it's, it's scripted, obviously, like most t television shows, whether it's constructed reality. And the great thing about Bear and his cameraman, they, they just got on so well. It was, it was like choreographing a dance, you know, they were compared to... Uh, Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers, they had that great camaraderie. So my, my role was to come up with the stories and the survival tips and the, 
the wow factor. So, for example, in the Sahara, we would use survival tips of what animals you could eat or where you could find water was obviously very key, how you could find shade. And in Russia, how to keep warm, how how to lay a trap for, say, um, an animal or squirrel, or how to how to climb and look for edible plants. I also did a fantastic um, one-off special because Bear went to uh, go out in the wild with celebrities. So I directed the one with Stephen Fry in the Dolomites, which went out on Channel 4 on Christmas Day, which was a real highlight for me to get the Christmas Day slot. And that, that was great fun because, you, you know, working with Stephen Fry, who's very erudite and very funny. And so that was a pleasure to do. But I think it's finding stories which would really appeal, especially to people, um, whether they're armchair travellers or people who are seasoned travellers and love being out in the wild and finding those surprising stories as well was always key. So, for example, for the camel story, um, it wasn't taken from The Empire Strikes Back. It was actually a real Berber trick. If they were stuck in stuck in a sandstorm, they, they would sleep sleep um, next to their camel, build a sh- shelter over their camel, or if the camel had died, you know, sleep, sleep in the innards of a camel. So always looking for that kind of credible basis as well. Now, in terms of storyline, one of the things that comes up a lot when we talk about story or, you know, new people getting into the industry, worrying that there's nothing new to film, you know, in natural history. It's like, well, everything's been filmed. And, you know, what do I do now? Um, How do you go about looking at new storylines? Because, of course, there's always a new take on something. There's always, I mean, one, there's, you know, new behavior being found for a start, but that's that's kind of the new stuff. But how do you go about looking for storylines, which might have been told before, but looking at a fresh way of, of, of telling it? That's, that's a good question because we're always looking out for new stories and fresh stories. Um, and I remember living in L.A. after The Shape of Life and wanted to do something about Los Angeles. This was 2001. Um, and I was researching stories and thinking, well, is there is there any wildlife there? Is there any exotic wildlife? And so could I do a story about the parakeets? the escape parakeets could i do a story about the trees in la or the migratory bird life and i didn't have an answer i couldn't find a compelling answer and it took me 15 years before i found the answer of a story i wanted to do in los angeles and it came when when i just got my green card actually and i'd gone back to um work in la on through the wormhole with morgan freeman and i at that time it was a very famous um newspaper article Mountain lion breaks into LA Zoo and eats a koala. <laughs> and like, it, wow. it was like a gift from heaven to have that story. And if right. anyone who knows the story, the mountain lion is P22 mountain lion who lives in Griffith Park. And he had broken into LA Zoo and allegedly mauled uh, a female koala. Um, and then I began to investigate P22 and just found out he had an incredible story and no one had told it. And so it's just ripe for the telling. And that's how I came to uh, produce and self, self-finance self because I was so passionate about it. Um, my documentary, The Cat That Changed America, 
which has been um, a huge part of my life really for the last five years. And that, that's great because, um, well, one, I, I know P22 well um, with my films I've done on overpasses and with the overpass being built, I think it's going to be the largest overpass in America, over 10 lanes in L.A. Uh, and they're currently breaking ground, I believe, right now to, to start that project. Um, you know, that's very close to my heart. And obviously, I worked with Mountain Lions with my wife for many, many years. Um, it, it was great to see that you've you you've taken that story because it is an amazing story and it's something that got highlighted by Steve Winter and obviously the picture of P22 with the Hollywood sign in the background for National Geographic magazine. Um, tell us a bit about I mean, so you you know you as a as a freelancer. Right, you took that role on to say, okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna produce this, I'm gonna finance it, I'm gonna direct it. It's a great story. What was, what was your reasoning behind doing it that way rather than pitching that show, say, to National Geographic or to the BBC or, or whoever else? And having the connections and the history that you have, you could have easily have done that. So what was your, your decision-making kind of to, to go that route? Well, the, the previous year, I, I was quite confident as well, having lived in L.A., but um, again, it's like fate. Um, with my green card, uh, I got my green card in September of 20, 2015, and I went to Jackson Hole Wildlife Film Festival, and I won, I won the Special Jury Award for The Shape... Um, no, it's called The Secret Life of Your House, and it was an ITV1 TV1 production with George McGavin as a presenter, about what would happen if a house was full of bugs and uh, rats and mice. It was a very fun experiment to do. And so I just won the award and I was feeling quite confident because this, this business can knock you down a few pegs right. quite, quite often. And I was, I was living in Los Angeles having finished the Morgan Freeman series. And so I thought, well, why, why not let's have a go at, you know, producing, directing and financing your own documentary and instead of taking it to the networks why don't you try it on the independent film festival circuit which I, which I'd never done before but I've always been interested in because you you hear tales of um, directors going off to Sundance and you know all those glamorous places with their films and doing really well um, and also Free Willy had done well I believe around about time um, and so there was a there was a certain interest and buzz in um, natural history films, documentary features. And so I'd, I'd met this great cameraman at Jackson Hole called Alex Rappaport. He lived in L.A. So I asked Alex to film it. Um, and that's the other thing which is very key, having collaborators you enjoy working with and who, who bring a different set of skill sets to yourself because I'm more of a producer, director and, and a commissioner. And so I, I'd saved a bit of money and um, I, I just decided to finance it myself, produce, produce it, Alex filmed it and I edited, edited it back in the UK. Again, I used um, previous editors I had worked with who gave me uh, mates rates to edit, um, which was great. And so I would, I would view the rushes that Alex sent over iCloud from LA to my place in Bristol and you know these huge files so I was I was very meticulous in just editing the script and then sending that off to the editor and then 
decided to send it off to wildlife um, or film festivals and see see what luck. And I had a great Christmas present that um, that year. It was 2016 turning 2017. It was accepted into the Santa Barbara International Film Festival. And that, that was a great uh, festival for it to premiere. It was actually quite perfect because it was within driving distance of Los Angeles. So it was in California where a lot of the community knew about P22 and also about the wildlife crossing over the 101, which is at um, Liberty Canyon, on the way to Santa Barbara. And it was also within driving distance of LA. So a lot of people from LA could drive over for the, for the world premiere. So we had the world premiere in February, which actually turned out to be five years. Again, all the stars are aligned here. Um, since P22 was discovered in Griffith Park uh, by Miguel Ordignana, the wildlife biologist, who caught it on his camera trap. And so we actually premiered the film on the fifth anniversary. And um, Beth Pratt, who you mentioned earlier, she was campaigning to build a wildlife crossing. So I knew that was a very important part of the film to give it a conservation focus and a sense of purpose. And they were looking for funds to build what is now the Wallace Annenberg Foundation, um, named after the Wallace Annenberg, who, who gave a, a healthy donation. And so that work has started on the bridge just earlier this year, and it will take a, a few years to complete. But I, I got a, a very fabulous write-up a couple of days in the LA Times. They, they probably credited the cat that changed in America more than it was due to... Um, to like raising awareness, but I, I certainly hope I, I raised a lot of awareness about the crossing MP22. Well, that's fantastic. And um, I mean, the, the great thing about stories like that is if you catch them at the right time, so much of the time you can get more credit and people are way more uh, interested in spreading your film, spreading your story because of timing. And certainly my crossing film, Reconnecting Wild, had that same impact in terms yeah. of it was at the right time. It's been still being shown at conferences all over the place based on its timeliness and the fact that we now know that we need way more crossing structures in the, around the world, but certainly here in the US. Um, and people are tuning into that. And of course, now there's federal funds that have been made available for these crossings, which is fantastic. Do you know off the top of your head how much the uh, the overpass in LA, I think they'd raised like 40 million, was it? Or was that their their amount they were trying to raise? I don't want to give out inaccurate figures, but um, I believe the cost of a crossing is about 85 million and they, they were on target to certainly start development, which they did. Excellent. Yeah. Yeah. And I couldn't quite remember. I knew it was a, a substantial amount of money because of obviously where it's going. It's a hard place to put a, a wildlife crossing in. So um, and uh, do you want to, are you able to talk about the budgets for your film? in terms of self-financing and what have you, I think it's probably really interesting to listeners to find out how how much it costs for you to put that together. Sure. Um, well, as I mentioned, film festivals have certain categories. If it's a feature, it generally has to be over 50 minutes. Um, or if, if it's a, like a long-form feature, some, some festivals require it, for be, it to be like over 70 minutes uh, and I did two versions and in hindsight I would have only done one version because 
um, two versions means that obviously more in post-production and um, it's it's a bit of a hassle. Um, but one 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 fifty or fifty-five minutes, I think, is good for most film festivals to be accepted. I was also trying for the big festivals like Sundance um, and Tribeca, um, but as I said. We we got into the Santa Barbara Film Festival, um, also the the LA Festival. LA has quite a few festivals, and obviously it's an LA story. But it was a of a DTLA downtown Los Angeles festival that we screened in. Um, we 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 did go to New York um, at the New York uh, Wildlife and Conservation Film Festival. Had a fab fabulous festival at San Luis Obispo, which is a lovely town just north of uh, um, Santa Barbara, which I knew well from my days in Monterey. I'd always, you know, stop over in San Luis Obispo. It was a very friendly film film festival. And so we did a lot of the California film festivals. And for, for the budget, um, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't say it was that much. I was just carefully budgeted, obviously paying the cameraman and the editor and the post-production. And, and just getting someone... It's very important for film festivals to have the right kind of format for them. And so you could go to your local um, cinema projector house. I, I went to the watershed in Bristol and there's a fabulous team there who helped me get the right format to show at all these film festivals. I, I think it's called a D DCP. It's taking my mind back a couple of years now, but um, film festivals yeah. require is it like a DCP for their for their format? Yeah, and it can get can get expensive doing that. So, um, uh, and I know now a lot of festivals will actually convert for you. You know, they have the, yeah. the software now to be able to do those conversions, but not all of them. I recently got introduced to Athletic Greens as a way to optimize for better gut health, get more energy, and optimize the immune system. So what is this stuff? Well, with one delicious scoop of AG1, you're absorbing 75 high-quality vitamins, minerals, whole food source superfoods, probiotics, and adaptogens to help you start your day right. This special blend of ingredients supports your gut health, your nervous system, your immune system, your energy, recovery, focus, and aging. It's a lifestyle-friendly brand, which means whether you're eating keto or paleo, vegan, dairy-free, gluten-free, it's going to work for you. Contains less than one gram of sugar. There's no GMOs, no nasty chemicals or artificial anything while still tasting good. And for every purchase, Athletic Greens is going to donate to organizations helping to get nutritious food to kids in need, including No Kid Hungry here in the U.S. In fact, in 2020 alone, Athletic Greens donated over 1.2 million meals to kids. And not only that, Athletic Greens is a climate-neutral certified company. Again, in 2020, Athletic Greens purchased carbon credits to support projects protecting old-growth rainforests. That's huge. Right now, it's time to reclaim your health and arm your immune system with the convenient daily nutrition. It's just one scoop in a cup of water every day. That's it. No need for a million different pills and supplements to look out for your health. So to make it easy... 
Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do to get this deal is visit athleticgreens.com forward slash emerging. That's E-M-E-R-G-I-N-G. Again, that's athleticgreens.com forward slash emerging to take ownership of your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. Now back to the show. So in terms of recouping your cost, and, and this is how, uh, you know, this is a, a question that is on the, uh, the minds of pretty much every freelance filmmaker, wildlife filmmaker out there. They want to know, you know, if they, if they put themselves out there and they make a show, how do they then go and recoup the cost? Are they going to sell it? Are they going to license it? Is it going to be acquired? What is your goals for a show like that? Are you looking to have it as an acquisition uh, to a network, meaning they, you know, they pay for it for a certain amount of showings, um, or they buy it outright? What would you? What would? What's the best case scenario for you with a film like that? Well, I'd like to say. I didn't make it, you know, to um, become a millionaire. <laughs> um, I, know, I know practically you, you, we, we need to find ways to finance uh, our films and obviously um, keep going with our passion. Uh, but uh, I did find a distributor, been approached by a few distributors um, with, with offers. And I, I went with Earth Touch which is a South African distributor, because I knew them, basically. I'd done some work with them, and I knew them from the, from the festival circuit and liked working with them. And so they, they took it on as an acquisition, as, as um, a pre-sale as well. And so uh, I think we sold it to a couple of animal digital channels in Europe. But also they put it, they put it on the internet after a few years, because it had been out since 2017 so i think about two years ago they put it on online and so it's now on pay to pay on demand and so it, it's actually very cheap to watch it's only about a couple of dollars but those couple of dollars add up in the long run and i also wrote a book to accompany a, a children's book which um again is a passion of mine because i'm a storyteller and a writer and so I thought it'd be great because for kids to find out about P22 uh, and his amazing, incredible journey. And so I've been promoting the book and the uh, film alongside each other. Yeah, that's a great thing to do. I, I too have created a, a kid's book, Spoon of the Bear, which uh, kind of fits in with all of the bear filming that I do of yeah. urbanized bears. Um, how important do you think it is for filmmakers to look at diversifying their income streams like that? Because it can help in two ways. It can help if you can sell the book and you can actually get funds back in from the book sale. But also it's another thread that you've got out there that brings people back to the film and the story. Do you, do you think that's essential these days in terms of part of your marketing plan? Or is that just something that's nice to do because you, you enjoy writing? I think as a storyteller, we should think about formats on social media whether it's short films on Instagram or Facebook. Um, and I, I would do that, you know, 
I actively promote on social media. Now, obviously, there's TikTok, which reaches a huge number of young people, and that's really important. And so even if you're putting out short versions of your film or have a campaign strategy around your film is very important to raise awareness, to have have trends, to really create that kind of brand. And so I strongly believe in that. And that's actually quite an economical way to reach a large audience. You just need the time to do it, really. You've got to dedicate time to social media, especially TikTok. Um, and all the young people today, they're called content creators. And so these content creators, um, they really invest their time and their energy and passion and put music to their short videos and they edit it. Um, and it's quite cheap to do, but you just need the dedication and the creativity. And if you're a wildlife filmmaker, in theory, you should have those editing skills and that storytelling passion to do that. So I, I, I would really look at that. Um, strategy, I think, especially if you're coming up the ranks. Yeah, great advice. And, and yeah, social media is obviously an easy one because it's uh, it's free. You don't have to have books printed and things like that. But it is time. <laughs> I always you know, I get a lot of uh, questions about the book publishing and how long it took and, uh, you know, the marketing. And I always tell people that you know, writing the book, and my book's very small, it's a board book for kids, but the the creation, the idea, the implementing, the, the getting to the stage of having the book in my hand was really about 5% of the overall, because the marketing never, ever stops. And, you know, that's really the 95% of the time you're ever going to put in is then marketing and keeping it going. As an author today, you have to be in control of your destiny of, you know, where that book goes. Unless you have a publisher doing it all for you, which is fairly rare these days, you're always going to be part of the distribution and marketing of how, how your product gets out there. And so really, really important. So, Tony, what, what is next for you? What are you working on right now? And what are your goals for the future? Well, I'm, I'm working on the science series at the moment. It's on climate change, which is really interesting and very exciting. I've been working on that since the spring. Uh, that will go out on Discovery Channel uh, end of the year, probably end of next year. Um, and my goals is really like most wildlife filmmakers, it's to find those great stories like P22 because they don't come along often to find stories like My Octopus Teacher. I'm very much interested in stories uh, with the animal-human inter interface with a conservation message or a tagline or a campaign or a purpose like the Wildlife Crossing. And um, those stories, you know, they're, they're quite hard to find. So you need to really be out there um, engaging in the science community talking to people, going to conferences, going to wildlife film festivals, because there's so much you can find down the rabbit hole of the internet. You really got to engage in the world, I think, um, if, you're, if you're a filmmaker. What would your advice be if someone has found the, the next P22 story, right? <clears throat> and they're, you know, they have camera gear. I, I get this a lot with my mentoring group. People, you know, are, think they need to go out and make the story to sell the story. 
But what would your advice be? You know, if they want to move quickly, they found this story and they want to take advantage of that story straight away without it taking two years. Um, sh you know, what, what would your advice be? Should they just start reaching out and networking or should they go out and try and produce something to then show? It, it depends on your skill. If, you, if you're a camera person, I think you can obviously film it yourself. Most people are like self-shooting producer directors. That's how the industry has changed a lot, especially with young people. They're more multi-skilled than most of us, our counterparts 20, 30 years ago, which were more compartmentalized. But certainly if you've got the acumen to pick up a camera and you enjoy filming and editing, then you can put together, you know, a segment or a taster, and and just take it to, take it either to a network or if you feel less comfortable doing that, taking it to a producer you may know or or a company that you trust. But do do value your work, um, do value your ideas, and don't don't give them away freely, <laughs> because it is it is a tough business at the end of the day. So um, you know, recognize your worth. Even, even if you don't have many credits under your belt, recognize because it's hard work and you've, you've put in that dedication um, and you've put in that passion. So you should be rewarded for that as well. So just, just, just I, I would write a list, you know, of checks and balances and see, see where, you, where you feel most comfortable. And should people think about telling more than one producer about it or just going to one at a time and getting an answer because again this question i get a lot is you know oh well once we've told a producer are we beholden yeah. then to that producer and that network or can we fish it around sure. the, you know yeah well the trouble with this business it's so small and so we're, we're all pitching to the same commissioning editors because there's only really a handful even even with the streamers now uh, it's still quite a niche market for blue chip. It depends what your it depends what your story is as well. If it's got more more of a people angle, then you you probably got a wider reach. But um, ask that producer to be honest with you. Say, are, are you getting any traction in this story? Or um, say, I'll give this idea for you, to you for three months, for example, um, and see if you can pitch it or get some funding for it. But after that. That, that that story idea reverts back to me. So you can ask them for, um, you know, a non-disclosure agreement as well, um, or a, a pitching agreement where you you set a limited time, um, but follow your instinct. Do you, do you trust this producer? Do you like working with this producer? How, how, how much have, have they produced in the past, which is similar to your story is also very important. Um, because you're not going to take a story on, on Wales to someone who hasn't got a track record of, say, producing marine stories. That would be my advice. Yeah, that's really valuable advice. I think certainly, yeah, go to producers who are producing similar content and have agreements, pitching agreements, like you say, yeah. whether it's a few months, three months, six months, just to protect yourself. 
so very important. Tony, thanks for taking the time out today and talking with me. Um, where can people follow your work, your films, your books? I know you've written more than uh, just the P22 book. What, what, are, what other books are out there that people can, uh, can look up and find? Sure. Well, um, my website is TonyLeeMoraleBooks.com. And my Cat That Changed America is just that, the Cat That Changed America.com. So I've got some filmmaking books on my website because a real passion of mine is obviously film. So I've written a few books on film directing. And I've, around the P22 story, obviously, The Cat That Changed America, I wrote another novel based in California. And so Tony Lee Morale Books is a good start, I think, to find my work. That's great. And uh, people should look you up and check out all your work because you've been prolific in both film and books, which is fantastic. Tony, thank you again. Really appreciate chatting with you. Got some great advice there. And um, yeah, all the best with everything you've got coming in the future. Great. Well, thank you for having me as your guest. If you have enjoyed this episode of the Master Wildlife Filmmaking Podcast, then please consider leaving a rating and a comment. And subscribe if you haven't already done so from wherever you get your favorite podcasts from. The ratings really help rank the podcast and get more people to find it. Also, if you know someone who is into wildlife filmmaking, or maybe they're a nature photographer and they're looking to transition and they aren't listening, to the podcast currently, please tell them about it. Word of mouth is the best way for me to build my listeners uh, for this podcast. I would very much appreciate it. And also, if you are looking to break into the wildlife filmmaking industry and you're just looking for help, you're looking for answers for burning questions that you have, then please consider looking at my Master Wildlife Filmmaking Mentoring uh, Group and Mentorship Program. You can find that at Jake Willers dot com and just click on the mentoring tab or learn more tab where it says it on just the homepage there you can find it very very easily and then lastly if you want to help support this podcast the best way you can do it other than just telling other people about the podcast is to go to our patreon page it's patreon.com forward slash mwfp that's patreon.com forward slash MWFP. And there you can get all sorts of bonus content. We have extracts from podcasts that didn't make it to the, these episodes because they went on so long uh, because I didn't want to stop talking with our guests. So we put the extra content there. There are catch-up conversations with previous guests, finding out what they've been doing since I last spoke to them and so much more of the behind the scenes. Please consider taking a look. That is the best way to sponsor this podcast and get more episodes in the future. 